serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This morning, I want to preach on that simple thought, look and live. These people in the wilderness in Numbers 21 had experienced God's miracle working power in their life over and over and over again. At this stage in their lives, they have watched God through all 10 plagues, deliver the people of Israel, show his mighty power. They have been led by the pillar of cloud during the day and the fire at night. They have walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They have seen God provide for them water from the rock. I mean, and they've been fed. They've been fed by God in the wilderness. And even their response at this stage in their journey, their response to this food that God's feeding them so that they are sustained in the wilderness, their response is, and I quote, we loathe this food. It's interesting to me how possible it is that we can become complainers even after all that God has done for us. And how quickly our hearts and our minds can turn back to Egypt, the, the world that we came from. And we can think about all the, the ways that the flesh got what it wanted back in Egypt. And these people who have watched God do miracle after miracle are complaining again. They have grown weary of the wilderness. And there's a lesson for, for us as Christians to understand that this Christian journey that we are in, at times, it is a barren wilderness. God did not promise that it would always be green pastures and lush land and no problems. He promised that He would be with us. But when the fact that God is with you isn't enough, you will begin to be dissatisfied. They knew God was with them. They had seen it over and over and over again. The complaint was not, God, you're not with us. The complaint was, we don't like the journey. We don't like the path. We don't like the food. We don't like God's provisions. We don't like it here. And we don't want to die in this land either. Like, what? why did you lead us here, God? And so they had grown weary of the journey. Weary of the wilderness, and once again it had brought these people back to a place of murmuring against Moses, murmuring against God. Now they're crying and they're murmuring, rather than getting God to just give the little children what they want, like some two-year-old throwing a fit. That's what they thought. They thought they murmur enough, they whine enough, they cry enough. That God's going to, you know, treat them like a little baby and give them what they want. It's not what happened at all. As a result of their murmuring and their crying, God sent this in the form of a plague, these serpents, <coughs> which are described as fiery. This plague at this time, it really came in the form of God 
lifting protection. I know that it says that God sent fiery serpents, but I want you to look at something else that we learn about this wilderness journey concerning these fiery serpents. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. It says, The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. So it appears then that these fiery serpents were actually there all along, that they were literal venomous snakes of some sort, that when they bit you, more than likely the the pain sensation was that of a fire, which is something that's repeatedly reported by people who have been bitten by venomous snakes. So more than likely, this particular area of land was actually just infested with these snakes all over the place. But until this moment in time, God had protected them from this very thing. And their accusation that God was not their protector, that God was not their provider, that God had brought them there to let them die, in God's judgment of that statement, he basically said, you're going to find out how little you know about my protection. And one of the things that I see in, in this introduction this morning is how true it is that often God's protecting us from things we know nothing about. And we're not thankful for it. We're not appreciative of it because we don't even know that he's protecting us from it. And that when God is to lift the hedge, if you will, when God's to say, okay, fine, that's what you think. And that's what you're going to say. You're going to curse me and you're going to say that I'm not good. You're going to say that I don't take care of you. That God at times has a way of kind of stepping back and saying, well, let's see how you fare in this world without me. And these fiery serpents come in and they begin to bite the people of Israel. We can easily picture the scene. I think especially if, if I'm correct about this, that these were just poisonous or venomous snakes that infested the area. We could get a picture of what it was like. We, we know about venomous snake bites. We know there are some that, that when they bite a person, they have literally minutes to live. We know there are others that the death process takes time. And when God told Moses to build a serpent and a, and a bronze serpent and lift it up, and then when people would look at it, they would live, there's something that teaches us. It teaches us that most likely these particular venomous snakes weren't the kind that when you get bit, you've only got five or seven steps. That there was this consciousness, I have been bit, I am in the process of dying, this feels like fire in my legs and it's starting to spread to my body, but there was time for them to get wherever this bronze serpent was stationed so that they could look at it. The people eventually, they admit their sins to Moses and God, and they ask for help. And it's interesting that one of the things they ask for specifically is that pray to God that he would take away the serpents. Notice that God's response here is not to take away the serpents. Instead, it is to make a way through the plague. It is to make a way for those who have been bitten by the serpent to look and live. Now Jesus points to this story 
in one of the most significant sections of the book of John. In John chapter 3, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but we're going to come back to it. In John chapter 3, you have Jesus with his magnificent discussion with Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're a man come from God. There's no way you could do the things you do if you weren't sent from God. Jesus says what? You must be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is saying, well, how can a man be born again? This is, this is all about the great born-again moment in a person's life. This is about the spiritual transformation for which Jesus came. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, I'm talking to you about spiritual things, Nicodemus. As the Son of Man, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the very next verse is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It's this great big conversation. It's an awesome conversation. Most of us are familiar with some of those verses. But most of us probably did not know that the great reference to this five verses in Numbers 21 is tucked right there in the middle of it as Jesus transitions to, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And He points to this story. This morning what I want us to see are the correlations between the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and Jesus on the cross. I'm going to share with you four of them this morning. Number one, the first correlation that we see is the simplicity of the cure. The simplicity of the cure. Look and live. Man, that's easy. So easy, it's difficult to believe. That was God's answer. Build a serpent, stick that thing up on a snake, or build a bronze serpent, stick that thing on a pole, and put it somewhere people can come look at it. And when people look at it, they will live. That, that was so simple. And Jesus, when he references this verse in John 3.16, he changes the word look to the word believe. So that whosoever, it's not just whosoever looks at the Lord, whoever believes in Him. But the, the plan is still simple. It's believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. It is so simple that Paul said that this is, this is a stumbling block to the sinners. It's a stumbling block to the Gentile world because the cross is foolishness to them. It just doesn't make any sense. That something could happen on a cross that I didn't do. I'm not the one that's up there. I'm not the one paying for my sins. That somebody else could die on a cross. And all I've got to do is look to that person and believe in that person. And I can be right with God. He says, that's a stumbling block to the Gentiles. It does not make sense. It's hard to process. But the truth is, it is that simple. The cure is simple. God's answer to our sin problem is simple. And there are multitudes in the world that miss it because it is too simple for them. Could you imagine 
having been bitten by one of these vipers, death has sunk into your body and it is overtaking you. Could you imagine thinking to yourself, that whole bronze snake on a serpent thing is so stupid, so simple, I ain't going. And you just choose to die because it seems so simple. As foolish as that would have been, how much more foolish is it to the man or the woman who does that with their own soul when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? Look and live. I confess that uh, when I think about it in my own humanity, in my own mind, I confess that it seems too simple for me. I confess that it doesn't make sense to me when I break it down in that simple of terms. And so what I want to set out to do this morning in the next three points is I want to help explain the why. Why is that all that it takes? Why just look and live? There are certain things that when God tells us to do, God does not always explain Himself. He's God. He does not have to explain Himself to you and I. And there are times that our response to God needs to be the same thing we expect from our children at times when it's like, I can't explain it all to you. You've just got to trust me, son. You've just got to trust me, daughter. Here's the answer and here's what you've got to do. Sometimes we've got to be that way with God. But there are also times when we dig deep, we study, and we understand that God does, in fact, reveal some things to us. See, God doesn't always hide the why. Sometimes He reveals it to us. Sometimes He shows us why. And I think that when we understand the why between look and live, that at least it does for this preacher. It helps make sense of how easy it is. And it also helps me realize it's not quite as easy. The the look wasn't just like a passing, oh, okay, I'm healed. I'm going to demonstrate what type of looking brought a person back to life. So number two this morning, the next correlation. In the serpent, they looked upon the source of their suffering. Isn't it interesting that in Numbers 21, God had Moses build a fiery serpent. So what he had him do was basically take the likeness of one of these serpents and form it out of bronze and then put it up on a stick. And so these people are looking at the very thing that has caused their plague. That's what they're looking upon. And it teaches something about this looking that God calls us to look to. They had to behold the very reason that they were in this mess. The serpent was a reminder of them of what happens when you curse God. And they were dying. Their children were dying. And daddies were dying. And mamas were dying. These serpents weren't, you know, they didn't care who they bit. So it is with the great serpent. He doesn't care who he bites. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy everyone. And this this plague of snakes had 
worked itself into their land and it was impacting everybody. And as they looked and beheld the bronze serpent, they looked at the very source of their curse. A reminder of what happens when they turn their back on God. A reminder of what happens and what it looks like in the family and what it looks like in the home and what it looks like in the community when a people choose to turn their backs on God and murmur and curse God and murmur against Moses and God's people. When you turn your heart back to Egypt and the sin of the world, the serpent was represented in all of that. The Bible speaks of the devil as the old serpent. The fiery serpent is how he appears as the great red dragon of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. The Bible speaks of the fiery darts of the enemy when it talks about us putting on the whole armor of God. There is absolutely some correlation and some symbolism here of this serpent who brought the plague into town. And when we look at Jesus, when we look at Him on the cross, I am so convinced that what I'm about to share with you over the next 20 minutes is one of the things the enemy has tried to take out of the church. Well, he's happy with us seeing Jesus with little kids on his lap. He's happy with us seeing the Jesus who heals the lepers, does all the nice things. As long as we will do anything but behold the Lamb of God slain. Because it's there that we look and live. And when we see Jesus on the cross, I thought about looking, this is an interesting truth about this message, I thought about looking for a picture of Jesus on the cross to have up on the screen. And you know the problem I came across was this. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was marred beyond human resemblance. He was beat up so bad, his face was so swollen, he, he, he had so much blood that he, you couldn't resemble a, a man. You, you couldn't tell who he was. When you keep that in mind, go look at pictures of you know, Jesus crucified. There's always a little, little trickle of blood coming down. Very good looking white man. With a very well kept beard. Hanging there for us. That isn't what it looked like, folks. He was marred beyond resemblance. He was a man who was nearly beaten to death. And who nearly bled to death. Before they ever crucified him. And when we look at that. You know what we see? We see the source. Of all the suffering in this world. We see it. Not that Jesus is the source. But the blood running down his face. The hatred that put him on that cross. The selfishness of the religious leaders. Who did everything they could to bring him to this moment of his murderous death the crowds chanting crucify him the hatefulness of mankind the wickedness of the human heart you see it all on full display as an innocent man is murdered with the consent of the public and what i'm telling you is and i pray the holy ghost will help you here this morning you've got to look you've got to behold the Lamb of God. This is not some passing, fleeting, okay, move on past the cross, preacher. Let's get back to Jesus with little kids on his lap. 
you've got to look and you've got to focus and you've got to see him there. If there will ever be healing, there must come a moment where we are truly in touch with our own sins and we recognize the very source of the mess that I am is my actions and my sins and what I have done is evil and wicked and horrendous and I have cursed God and I have cursed all that is of God and I am guilty before Him. There must be a beholding of that truth before you will ever find true healing. And that was there. As they beheld the source of their suffering, staring at the serpent, they were reminded of the danger of turning on God. And there must be an honest look at our sin before we'll ever see the need for a Savior. This preacher is personally convinced this is one of the reasons that sometimes people who have walked through the greatest of sins when they come to see the light, are the most solid Christ followers that there ever was. It's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. Jesus spoke of it in this terms. He said to to the one who was forgiven the most, they love the most. And I, I look back at that stage in my life when Joplin Emerson began to turn his heart to God or God began to get a hold of Joplin's heart, might be a better way to say it, but I, I, I look at that time that led to my day of salvation. And what I remember is there was an awakening in my heart of sin. Now, I didn't know it was sin. I wouldn't have used those terms. But I began to recognize that everything in my life that I'd been told was a lie. That all of this partying was not fun. I remember thinking to myself as I sat around with my friends at 1 o'clock in the morning and our life were wasted. And we'd talk about how we don't want to be this way anymore. We've got to change our lives. And I remember I'd think back to where I started three or four years earlier when it was fun. We'd sit around and just laugh and be stupid. Now all of a sudden we don't even laugh. It's not enjoyable. We are just owned by this thing. And there started to be a real honest observation of what the Bible calls sin in my life. And I began to see it for what it was. It was destructive. It had ruined everything in my life that was important to me. It was ruining everything in my friends' lives. And we were trapped by it. And I I began to hate it. And I wanted to escape it. But I didn't know how. I didn't know where to go. Before I ever came to see Christ... Through all the mess of the cross, before I ever became to see the God who loved me, the first thing that I began to be awakened to in my life was that sin is this evil, invasive force in this world and in my life. And I didn't want to do anything, I didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. I'm telling you, there must be a true beholding of sin. Of the plague of this world. Before we will ever turn to God. Before our hearts are ready for the remedy. The third thing. The third correlation. Is that their looking had to be focused. And intent. I thought about wasting the next five minutes of your lives. 
to talk to you about the tense of the Hebrew, the tense of the Greek that's translated out of the Hebrew to demonstrate for you all that this looking is not just some passing looking. Rather than doing that, I'm just going to tell you that the context of look and live has this connotation of intently with um, fervency, with focus. In other words, when someone was bit by the viper, Death was imminent. It wasn't as if Moses just found the highest place around to stick that thing up on a hill so that you could just glance at it from a mile away and say, oh, there it is, healed. In fact, more than likely, now this is not provable, but there's a ton of reason, and again, I won't take the next five minutes to give you the reason, but there's a ton of reason to assume that this thing was actually put up in one of the tents. That it was inside of an area that would have been sheltered from rain and inside of a a station tent somewhere where the community knew, here's the pole with the bronze serpent on it, and if you get bit, you need to get into that tent, you need to get to that place, and you need to look. Gaze is another word that's used, uh, can be translated here. You need to gaze upon that serpent. And so when a person got bit, there had to be some intentionality about getting from where they were to the place where God said they could find healing. And when they got there, they had to come in and they had to look. I mean, they had to look upon that thing. And I want you to just, I'm going to give you the visual that Joplin Emerson had when I was meditating on this this week. Bit by a viper, more than likely, more than likely somewhere below, you know, the knee. Immediately the pain sinks in. The consciousness sinks in, I might die here. I've seen people die. People have died all around us already from these same bites. It's like fire in the leg. It begins to spread throughout the body and there's the wonder. There's the wonder of how long do I have? The body starts seizing up and it's not working. In my mind, I pictured me. I pictured me. Snake bitten. Finding a way to get to that cross, that pole that had the the serpent on it. And I pictured myself getting in to that tent and there it is. And I pictured myself literally as I'm snake bitten and I'm nearly in the facing death in the eyes, I pictured myself dropping to my knees simply out of pain, not even necessarily reverence, but out of pain and exhaustion. And I pictured myself looking up at that bronze serpent. And this is the visual that I had. Sometimes us preachers were this way. But I had a picture of the plague had worked itself up to about my chest. And I had a picture... When I looked, I could feel it starting to go down. And I'm looking as intently as I could ever possibly look. I don't even want to blink. I'm beholding the source of my healing. And a few more moments go by as I'm 
looking at this thing and meditating on how I ever got to this place and I'm seeing the source of my healing and the plague in my body begins to drop. And I picture this intentional, focused period of time, whether it was 10 minutes or 10 hours, it wouldn't have mattered. So long as we knew that healing was occurring, we would be focused on that thing. We would not look to the left or the right. We would not leave and go home to come back later for some more healing. We would focus on that thing with all of the intensity of our life, and we would not stop looking until we were completely healed. I am utterly convinced that was what each individual healing looked like in this story. I believe that with all of my heart. And I am convinced that there are multitudes today who never really find healing in Christ. They never find real salvation because they've never really beheld the Lamb of God. There's never been a real look. There's never been a true focused and intentional time in their life when they stop looking at everything else in this world. They stop looking at the, all that's wrong in the world. They stop looking at the church. They stop looking at the preacher. They stop looking at the music. They stop looking at the screens. They stop looking at it all. For the first time in their life, they beheld the Lamb of God. And they looked at Jesus and nothing else than Jesus. And they, they said, I'm not, I will not look anywhere else until, Lord, you heal me and you change me. And there's this sense of focus and intentionality about it. For there to ever be true healing, there must be a true intent looking to Christ. The fourth correlation that I see between the two texts and finally this morning is that their looking gave them life I think that's an incredible word and when Jesus points to this in John chapter 3 he's talking about life it wasn't simply look and not die the command wasn't look and be healed of your sickness but Look, this was the promise, look and live. That's the interesting little word that's tucked into this. And in John chapter 3, if you have your Bible, you can work through this with me if you want, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to take one conversation and pick some choice sentences. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, the answer is about being born again. It's about... God's life being born into your heart. It's about your spirit coming to life. It's all simply about beholding the man of God, the Lamb of God on the cross. The very next verses that follow, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, here it is again, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Again, may the Holy Spirit help us to see this deep, deep truth about our faith this morning. It is true that there must be a consciousness of our sin before we will ever truly turn from it and and, and see our need for a Savior. Totally true. 100%. But the beholding of the serpent and the beholding of Jesus dying on the cross and seeing all that sin did to Him and seeing that He became sin for us. It's more than simply acknowledging the truth about our nature. This beholding of Jesus, it's more than simply recognizing that we are sinners who have gone astray. It is also, at the same time, simultaneously, the receiving of a new life. Of eternal life. That's what Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus. you got to be born again. It's not about just changing your ways. It's not about just becoming more spiritual. It's not about just becoming more knowledgeable in your thing, understanding of the word. It's not about you know, more church services and more fasting and more this and more that, Nicodemus. You guys have done all of that and you see that it's still not enough. What you need is the miracle of new life. And Nicodemus says, well, how can that happen? How how is that possible? Jesus says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He is everlasting life. And the only Way to receive it. There's only one way. Is by beholding Him. That's it. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Multitudes miss it. Millions miss it. They're looking for life everywhere else. And I think this is another reason that we've got to be careful about inviting people to church. Because inviting people to church in and of itself ain't going to save anybody, especially if the preacher ain't preaching the gospel. Especially if they're not actually going to be introduced to Christ at church in the first place. But this is what people are looking at. You know, they're, 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 they're inspecting everything, looking for life, looking for life change. Going to try a church. They're going to, you know, they're going to check, they're going to check these two guys out. Trying to figure out if, if I'm going to let God change my life or not by investigating these two. They seem like pretty nice guys. But you investigate them long enough and you find, oh, you're not Jesus. You're not. You're not perfect. And so this whole thing must be a scam. Or we look somewhere else, you know. Sometimes it's even a favorite preacher. It's, it's the, it, you know, it, it, is, is there a social setting for me here? Is there status for me here? Is it, Exciting here. And we come, and a lot of times people, they find the things they're looking for temporarily. They find people. They find a group. They find an exciting service. They find the ability to come and sit in church and then leave afterwards and feel kind of good. Deep inside, there's still no transformation. They know it. 
Then you start wondering, is, you know, is, is this all fake? Is this all true? Is this all real? I'm going to tell you something, folks. Every single one of us, individually, each of us, each of us in order to experience eternal life, there will come a time in all of our lives, you will have to take your eyes off of everybody, including me. Everybody, including your favorite preachers, your favorite singers, your favorite this, your favorite that, all your friends, all your family, you've got to take your eyes off all of it. You've got to work your way into the tent where Jesus is. And you've got to behold the Lamb of God. And you've got to see the Son of God all by Himself hanging there and dying for your sins. And as you behold Him and realize what He went through and He endured for you, you start to see past all of that to something you've never seen before. And that is a God that loved you enough. To do that for you. And when you start to see him. It changes everything. I'm telling you it gives eternal life. And eternal life changes everything. You know it's one thing for me to give you the rationale. That because God loved you and did what God did for you. That you should love people that same way. That's a rational argument. That makes sense. We can even shame each other. Into actually behaving that way for a while. But I'm going to tell you something. You cannot love people like God loves people. And you cannot love your enemies like Christ has called you to love your enemies without beholding him up on the cross. But when you truly see him there and you behold him there and it becomes real to you. And you stop looking to the left and you stop looking to the right. And you behold the Lamb of God who was slain for you because of you but also for you. All of a sudden, that eternal life starts to penetrate your heart. And you no longer have to work to love people. You don't need some preacher to demand that you love people. You don't have to be told to forgive people. It's impossible to not. How could we not? How could we not love people if the eternal life of God is flowing in us and flowing out of us like a river of living water? We won't be told. We won't be forced. It will come naturally or supernaturally when we behold the Lamb of God. I want to I close this point to those of you this morning that are truly Christians with an emphasis on the need for us to continue beholding the Lamb of God. Uh, it's a lifelong uh, commitment that we can get diverted from. And you will find that when you do get diverted from it, your Christianity becomes very dry. You can become, you get a picking spirit in you. You always see something wrong in everything. When we get our eyes off of our Lord, and Je- our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first thing you've got to do, you've got to look, right, until you have life. And I pray that somebody here this morning that's never really done that, I pray that point resonates with you. This isn't some passing glance. I've heard people say, well, I tried church. That's, that statement in and of itself tells me you have no idea what you're talking about. I've tried church, I've tried church, I've tried church. God thing don't work for me. You have no idea what you're talking about. 
This is not an invitation to try church. This is a command, by the way. It's not even an invitation. It's, it was a command to look and live. Look. Look and look again. And Christians, don't stop looking. We must gaze with great focus and intention upon Christ alone until we have the fullness of eternal life. I'm telling you, our enemy wants us to look everywhere except with an intent gaze upon what our Savior did for us at the cross. He wants us to get our eyes everywhere else. And it takes intentionality, it takes focus and discipline as a Christian to keep our eyes on Jesus. We see this truth throughout the New Testament. But there are two passages that come to mind. Keep in mind that Paul is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to churches here in Colossians 3. He says, if then we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul's talking about him coming back, but he drops in this little statement in the middle of this sentence that teaches us Christ is our life. Folks, if he is our life, would you agree with me? We have got to focus on him. We've got to keep our eyes on him. We've got to behold the Lamb of God and not allow our eyes and our hearts to get focused on anything else, not our careers, not all that's going wrong in the world, not the need for revival, not the church or church growth or what's right or what's wrong. We have to get our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus. Let nothing divert your gaze from the Lord Jesus Christ. In every season, do not forget to look upon Christ with great intensity and focus. Do not take your eyes off of Him. Something similar is stated at the back end of Hebrews 12 and verse 2. It says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you see, both of these passages are to the Christian. Can you see that where it starts... You've been bitten by the viper. Death is imminent. Your only hope is a miracle of God. It starts with that repentant heart kneeling at the cross with an intent focus upon the Lord Jesus. Can you see that years and years down the road, folks, we are still there. We finish in the same location that we start on our knees. Beholding the Lamb of God with great awe and wonder that He would endure all the agonies of the cross for our sin and our shame. And that He loved us so much that He would do it for us. 
That we are to never leave that position. That our hearts are to fight for that position until we die. Until we see Jesus or until the Lord returns. That that is the goal of our faith. Look and live. That was a command. It's not some mere invitation. That's the command to each of us this morning. Look. Look. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, lifted up and crucified for you. Look to Him. It's a command that is either obeyed or not. Amazing, you know, simple it is. Real simple. Either you're going to do it or you won't. Those are the only two options this morning, actually, that everybody in this entire place is going to have a response to this sermon. Everybody. One is to be obey and look and live, and the other is to continue to not look and, and, and let death sink even further into your life. It was a command that brought life to those that obeyed it, and death continued to consume those who did not. It was simple. It's just as simple today. Look to Christ.